Welcome to Off the Books, where we are surfing the uncharted waters of accounting, finance, and wherever else the waves take us. Today, we have a very special episode of Off the Books coming to you from Workiva's Amplify Conference. If you aren't familiar with Off the Books, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you find your podcasts. You can check us out and subscribe. Please do. This episode is a special episode released between our second and third seasons. Season three is coming soon. Let's jump right in by introducing my co-host. Today we have Steve Soder. Good day, Steve. Hello, Nick. Steve Soder, accounting enthusiast and Diet Coke aficionado. I am looking forward to debiting some communication and, dare I say, life skills in our discussion today. And you are in luck because today we have Erica Dewan, the world's leading authority on 21st century collaboration and connectional intelligence. More on that in a moment. She is an author, she's a speaker, and has been dubbed the Oprah of management ideas. You have seen her at the World Economic Forum at Davos or at TED or listened to her on her own award-winning podcast, Masters of Leadership. And she is here this week at the Workiva Amplify Conference and took time to speak to us at Off the Books. Welcome, Erica. It's so great to be here with you, Nick and Steve. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. We could not be more pleased. And we have read both of your books. We think you're great. And I really want to hear about all the things you've been working on and what it means for the world today. And earlier I said you're the world's leading authority on connectional intelligence. Can you give us a breakdown of what connectional intelligence is? A lot of the ways that we measure relationships, especially in the digital world, is through the quantity of our connections. How many meetings do we have? How many LinkedIn followers do we have? But we all know having a lot of networks and connections doesn't necessarily lead to measurable change. The key is the skill of how you leverage your networks and relationships to drive value. And that's what connectional intelligence is all about. It's about moving from the quantity of our connections to quality of connections. So now my self-confidence, which had previously been measured in terms of LinkedIn connections and followers, might have taken a little bit of a hit, but that's okay. Erica, in your book, Get Big Things Done, you mentioned that connectional intelligence is actually a very old concept, even though it may not have been referred to it by that name. Can you give us some historical examples of connectional intelligence and getting big things done? Yeah, we all know what IQ is. And 20 years ago, emotional intelligence came to stage. But connectional intelligence, which is really this capability to unlock new and unrealized value from the diversity of our networks and relationships, has existed for a long time. Let me share some historical examples. Florence Nightingale, she was uh, someone who grew up with great education. She loved mathematics. And when she became a nurse, she began to apply her mathematical lens to a challenge she saw. She saw that wounded soldiers ended up having a very high mortality rate. She created data analysis using statistics in her time. She started a letter writing campaign to the press and government officials to really investigate and spend more time reducing the challenges that wounded soldiers had and ended up decreasing the mortality rate of wounded soldiers by 90%, 90%. Now, Florence is a great example of the power of connectional intelligence. She applied her 
passion around statistics and data to nurses. She connected with press and government officials and used her own resources and connections to get something big done. There are many others, Ben Franklin, Leonardo da Vinci, Mahatma Gandhi. But in many ways, I like to say, the breadth and depth of our connection is radically different now. And many of us feel we're not just connected, we're over-connected. So more than ever, just like these historical examples, we all have an opportunity not to connect more, to create more meetings and more emails, but to connect intelligently with the inclusivity of anyone anywhere to get big things done. All the people you profile in Get Th Get Big Things Done are fascinating, but I kept returning to Ed Malcerik. Mal 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 He's this freelancer who helped Colgate solve a, a Flore problem. Tell us about him. So Ed is a physicist who loves to solve scientific problems. He never wants to. He never wanted to work at a big company. He told me in an interview that he just loves solving problems, and so he does mainly freelance projects. Now, on the other end, Colgate, a large corporate company that makes toothpaste, was dealing with a specific scientific issue at that point in time. Their team of chemists had developed a new fluoride that they were meshing in their toothpaste, but there was a mechanical flow problem. The fluoride was getting stuck in the equipment, and all the best chemists couldn't figure out why. It was taking months and months of time, and at that point, costing hundreds of thousands of dollars. So finally... One of the chemists said, why don't we ask a different network? Why don't we connect a little more intelligently? This was not in their norm. They were used to having the answers as a scientist. One leader said, why don't we post it on a community called Innocentive, which is an online community where scientists come together to solve scientific issues. And it can be posted in an anonymous way so that there's no confidentiality issue. Now, they posted on the platform. Within two days, Ed solves a problem. He helps them realize this is a physics problem, not a chemistry problem. The Colgate team learned a few things. The first thing they learned is that they hadn't even asked the physicists at their own company. The second thing they learned is that physicist Ed that solved the problem didn't want to work at a large company, but in today's age, they could access and engage expertise far beyond traditional silos. And if we think back to the last 18 months, we've seen more disruption, yet more innovation in how we work. The opportunity to be more geographically inclusive of anyone anywhere to solve problems, to break silos, to not just rely on who's physically in the room, but who can be part of the room. And most importantly, to leverage subject matter expertise far beyond just the usual suspects, the usual titles will allow us to really drive breakthroughs in the modern age. Yeah, I love that story. Obviously, Ed isn't a, a headline name like Florence Nightingale or Ben Franklin, <laughs> but it's so emblematic of the simple way, uh, the, the, sort of the promise of that democratization of the internet, of being able to find the right answers from this larger pool. Because this guy, Eddie, makes his living just doing that, looking up things and being like, who will give me X amount to solve this one problem? It's a really sort of interesting life he's carved out for him. But anyway, it's, just... it's reimagining talent acquisition, right. I mean, how we bring talent into our industry. And of course, there's the traditional models that will remain the same, but really always asking ourselves, who can help and how can we engage anyone really to bring us solutions beyond the people we always ask beyond those with this traditional titles and beyond our traditional locations and silos. So we're talking about connectivity here and let's dig in a little bit deeper there. We often think of and have referred already in this conversation to the world as an increasingly connected space by 
the internet, by smart devices. But you make a pretty clear distinction between that kind of connectivity and the connectional intelligence that you write about. You've alluded to it a little bit so far, but, but break it down for us a little more, Erica. What is that distinction? We are all connected today. We, whether through email, social media channels, the, the old-fashioned phone call. Remember the phone call? It still exists. And in many ways, we live and breathe these new forms of digital connection. But what we really have an opportunity to do is to reimagine how we unlock new and unrealized value from the breadth and depth of our connection that we have. I want to share an example that will bring to life the difference between having the tools and using connectional intelligence. And this is a story uh, from a company we all know of as Oreo. Now, Oreo is a brand that traditionally really focuses on marketing. And one of their most critical days is the Super Bowl game, the largest football event in the United States. Now, a few years ago, you may remember that there was a blackout in one of the Super Bowl uh, events. It lasted 46 minutes. But within four minutes of the blackout, the Oreo team, the marketing team, designed, captured, and tweeted out on Twitter an ad that said, power out, no problem, you can still dunk your Oreo in the dark. And this ad went absolutely viral. It beat out every multi-million dollar commercial that day. It was made in four minutes, and it was entirely free for Oreo. Now, when you listen to the story, you think, oh, that was probably social media luck. But actually, it wasn't. From two years before that game, the Oreo team had created a cross-functional SWAT team of lawyers, executives, the ad agency, the social media team, and they would actually on a monthly basis come together and practice launching real-time ads around relevant news. By creating this cross-functional network, they were speeding up trust, they were building agility, and it was because they had built that muscle and unlocked a network that wasn't traditionally connecting in this way, that normally it would take six months to create a TV commercial through email, endless emails and traditional calls, and was able to come up with this ad in just four minutes. So really the distinction here is we have access to the tools today, but just being hyper-connected doesn't mean we're necessarily creating value or unlocking new types of value. And that's what connectional intelligence is all about. And you point out some that real-time marketing makes businesses a little more human, make them seem like they're in, involved in the same world that we are. But there are some examples of when that goes poorly, or that if you don't have quite the same, probably emotional intelligence in this case, a, a marketing team can put their foot in their mouth or can say something insensitive too. Absolutely. In, in many ways, it's really the mix between our human, our mind power, with also the technology capabilities we have. Nick, we need a cross-functional SWAT tiger team for Off the Books. We are missing that an opportunity well. here. <laughs> that's, that sounds great. I, it does sound great. We're going to quadruple, quintuple the size of the team as is, but I, I love it. I would like to be part of any SWAT team that doesn't include actual SWAT. You and me both. Erica, let's move on now um, to your latest book, Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance. Tell us about the book. Break it down for us. I've got a number of questions that I hope to get to as I reacted while I was reading it, but would love to have you give us an overview first. We all know research shows roughly 60 to 80% of our face-to-face -face communication is our nonverbal body language, pacing, pauses, gestures, tone, and this has been a key part of this industry for a long time. But in a digital and hybrid world, in a hyper-connected world, body language hasn't disappeared. It is transformed. 
We now infuse what I call digital body language signals and cues, whether we know it or not. The problem is many of us are doing it blindly, accidentally, or just plain wrong. Digital body language are really the signals and cues we send in our digital communication that make up the subtext of our messages from the punctuation we use to whether we choose to email, call, set up a video call, I am, to our response time, how quickly we respond or not respond to someone, to even the greetings and sign-offs in an email. Now, we may traditionally think we're just sending off something and others will get what we mean. But in fact, one study showed that up to 50% of the time, the tone can be misinterpreted in emails. So more than ever, digital body language is a skill that we have to master. That is an insane stat. I remember my jaw falling on the floor. 50% of emails are misunderstood for tone. What is the best way to correct for that? How do you, we've all struggled with, okay, I thought that was sarcastic, but the other person didn't on the other line. In our personal lives, how do you correct for that in a business setting? I'll share some examples. I'll never forget get, sending a message saying, do you want to speak Wednesday or Thursday? And the client responds, yes. And I'm just like, I can't deal with this. Read carefully. Or a boss sends me an email saying, send me this today, but it's in all caps. And I freak out. I think they're shouting. But in fact, they were just typing fast because they were on a plane and trying to get it out before they were able to take off. Tone can be misinterpreted. And there are two things we have to do here to adjust or adapt to these challenges. The first is when we are sending a message or receiving messages from others and decoding their digital body language signals, we always must ask two questions that should guide how we interpret it. The first is, who has more or less power? And the second is, how much do we trust each other? So if someone says, sends you an email saying, why didn't you finish this question mark? And it's a good friend, a peer, you may think they're being, they're joking around. But if a senior leader sends that to you, you may be frantic thinking you're about to get fired. And being a little bit thoughtful about how you're interpreting the message based on that power level is important. Secondly is trust. For some, trust is completely fine. They can send an email with uh, five exclamation points and see excitement. If there's low trust, they could see those five exclamation points and worry that someone's really signaling something's bad or wrong. So when it comes to this, there are a few key things we have to do because of the trust and power dynamic and the misinterpretations that can happen. The first is always assume good intent. Check your bias. Don't get emotionally hijacked and really be it, make sure you're in a clear mood before you're responding, especially if the tone can be misinterpreted. The second is when you're sending a message to others, ask yourself, am I being clear to this person about what I need? Have I thought about the trust and power level? And did I use the right medium altogether? Uh, so sometimes we send emails that really should be the quick phone call. Uh, sometimes we have phone calls that really, or meetings that should be that quick email. And being conscious of some of these differences can really allow us to make sure we're sending the right tone. For example, if there are three reply emails going back and forth where something is clearly not resolved, picking up the phone is a good way to show that you signal this is important and I want to resolve it versus just sending one, one more email again. Let's talk about that just a little bit, because that's something, Erica, that I struggle with frequently. Moving really fast, I feel like I am constantly inundated with emails, instant messages, texts, meeting requests. I've got a full calendar and there's only five or 10 minute chunks where I feel like I can knock a few things out. And I'm paranoid during the day because I know that if I can't keep up with the deluge of stuff, 
I'm going to end up working late into the night. I'm going to miss dinner with my family and you get burnt out. So as I think through that, part of me feels like, hey, I just want to pick up the phone and have a quick conversation. But I've recognized that in some cases that may actually drive inefficiency based on my audience, based on this power dynamic. I'm just wondering, what would you say to somebody who immediately defaults to, hey, face to face, we're going to figure this out and we got 90 seconds to do it because I got something really important to do and a place to be. So let's just get this done. Obviously, that is not a very emotionally intelligent approach. Yeah. So let's be honest. This is hard. If your boss is a serial texter, it's hard to change that behavior. And if someone's a serial video caller, it can be difficult. I think more than ever, we're 18 months into this digital shift. This is a great opportunity to do a postmortem with your team. What digital communication behaviors have been working well? What needs improvement in four areas? Number one, meeting culture. Number two, digital communication. Number three, collaboration tools. How we use them, when we use them, when we switch the channel. And last but not least, I think a fourth is the office water cooler discussions that I also think we need to replicate in this time of change. Now, when it comes to your specific question, Steve, around how do I deal, how do I handle some of these difficult scenarios? Again, it goes back to power levels, but there's three things that you can do to think about how you respond and react. The three factors that will really decide and guide which channels you use are complexity, urgency, and familiarity with that person. So is it high complex or low complex? If it's high complex, maybe you really need that video meeting discussion. If it's low complex, set some norms or agree with your colleague. We'll send our quick email with getting to the point quickly. No need for niceties. Urgency is the second one. Do you need it in five minutes or five days? A quick call can be warranted if it is truly urgent. But again, it may not be urgent for everyone. And and setting even just some response time expectations can be important. And last but not least, familiarity. Have you known this person for five days or five years? And that can also shape how people may feel comfortable engaging with you. But if someone keeps calling you and you really can't respond, just respond to them by email. Say, can't pick up the phone right now. Can you send it in an email? Or I'm not able to attend these three meetings. Can um, you share pre-work that I'll review by email and then share an agenda for a meeting and we'll switch a 60-minute meeting three three times to one 30-minute meeting with good pre-agenda notes and a good follow-up. Don't we all need that? No one needs more meetings. Absolutely. But you mentioned that we're 18 months into this digital transformation, and it's, that's true, but I also feel like it was hastening a trend that was happening well yeah. before the pandemic. That trend also, as we tentatively return to offices in some cases, it doesn't seem like it's going to abate at all. In your writing, you've expressed the importance of management, establishing norms in the shifting environment. What is the role of connectional intelligence and digital body language in establishing new norms of this hybrid work, which seems to be here to stay? What was implicit in the traditional office, the head nod, the handshake, the eye contact must be explicit in the hybrid office. And there are four key best practice norms. I I believe every leader, every team should implement and design some tactical strategies around as we navigate not only what I call the new hybrid normal, but what I hope to be a better normal, where we're not regressing to pre-pandemic behaviors. We're actually using this time of learning to be more innovative moving forward. The first key best practice is what I call we must value visibly. Now, prior to the pandemic, a lot of the ways that we valued visibly was the head nod, the team dinner, 
Today, valuing visibly is valuing people's time, inboxes, and schedules. It's setting norms that we start every meeting with clear agenda sent 48 hours before with thoughtful questions everyone should be ready to answer. I know simple teams that are valuing everyone by having everyone share those answers in the chat in the first five minutes of the meeting and then calling on people with different or diverse perspectives. They're hearing from introverts more than they ever heard from them before because introverts finally have time to digest ideas before the meeting, not rushing for a real-time response. And by using the chat tool, they can avoid turn-taking and really design for engagement in a very different way. Secondly, acknowledge individual differences when it comes to valuing visibly, whether someone is a uh, someone who speaks up very often or someone who needs some time to reflect and engage Valuing visibly is really taking that time to give everyone a shared space, allowing for three minutes of silence, even if it feels awkward in a video meeting, to show I appreciate you. I know you need to prioritize thoughtfulness over hastiness, rushing an answer. And last but not least, when we value visibly, we also practice radical recognition. What does this look like and mean? It means simply saying thank you. If someone stays up all night and works on a deliverable for you and then they see you in the office, they see the acknowledgement, the relief in your face, they felt valued. But today, if you just write a K period email or maybe don't respond at all or even the THX period, it doesn't feel like a thank you. So really taking the time to show recognition matters. Should we move to the second best practice or any comments on that, Nick and Steve, on valuing? I would like to, and this will probably relate to the other values as well, but how much of this is generational? We, as, a, as businesses, we work with people of all ages and the large, the in, everyone incoming at a level job now has been on screens and texting and for their entire lives. Yes. Some of us continue to get older. Correct. That divide gets greater and greater. Precisely. So have you found in your research on this that older generations are struggling or defined to saying that we used to do it this way and it was totally fine? And if so, what did they need to do? And is there anything that incoming young professionals need to recognize that worked for generations above them? Yeah. First off, Nick and Steve, I think you guys are getting younger, not older. So you're going in the reverse. <laughs> but let's answer the question. Now, let's talk the generational differences in digital body language. What I found is that it's not just age based, but there is a spectrum. There are those that are digital natives. These are individuals that thrive virtual first. They love text, IM, chat tools. They often grew up with it. They hate voicemail and they hate phone calls out of the blue. They expect everything scheduled in writing beforehand. A digital adapter is the other end of the spectrum. These are individuals that really feel like the immigrants to remote work. They can't wait to get back to the office. They're more traditional body language first. And while the skew is tends to be younger, people tend to be digital natives and older generations tend to be adapters. It's not all the same. I know 50 year olds that are natives and 35 year olds that are really adapters. So we also have to check our bias here. But what is true is for many digital adapters, this is a really important moment to get comfortable being uncomfortable, to remember that for that digital native new employee that's coming in, there are different signals and cues that make them feel valued visibly. I've seen fun things like when someone joins the company, there's one organization I know where they get their first emoji in the Slack channel within three months of joining. It's like an onboarding ritual, but it's actually a big thing. And for a digital adapter, they'd be like, what is that? But it's the, the replacement for that 
that a special announcement or a birthday cake. It's a different type of ritual. Another example, I know a digital native that will send a thoughtful email to the adapter to say, can you answer this? And the adapter will say, let's get on the phone to discuss. And the native will say, why can't you just answer my email? And again, it reminds us that we are not all the same and that valuing others visibly can look different. So we have to talk about our differences in digital styles and set a rules of the road of our expectations. So we're not just adapting to the serial texters and the serial video callers, but actually really defining what works best based on the work that we have at hand. Okay, value visibly was the first law. Let's hear the rest of them. The second law is communicate carefully. Now, I've summed this up already, but we don't walk the talk, we don't talk the talk, we write the talk. More than ever, our messages are visual. People read emails like they read websites. So there are a few things that we have to build the skill around. The first is thinking before we type. We talked a little bit about how tone can be misinterpreted. And more than ever, the best way to manage that is to be thoughtful, to check our own bias when we shoot something off, but also to assume that good intent on the recipient side. The second is to deliver with maniacal clarity. Now, I've seen teams really build great digital communication norms. For example, I know one team that in their subject lines, they have response time expectations. 4H means I need this in four hours. 2D means I need this in two days. One of my favorites is NNTR, which means no need to respond. And another one is ROM, which means respond on Monday. And especially if you send something on a Saturday, you don't want to ruin someone's e-weekend, especially that digital native that might think it's urgent when an adapter is just getting something out of their head. Uh, so communicating carefully is about a different level of consciousness and thoughtfulness, which again, always existed as an issue pre-pandemic. We just have to become more intentional because we are less reliant on that traditional body language. How are you doing, Nick, on communicating carefully these days? I, the best that I can, I think I'm doing is, do you think I'm doing well? You mentioned, and I, I made the generations things about age. I am a very traditional in the way that I eat. I don't like emojis. I, or I don't use them. I don't care if other people use them. I, I'm, I'm also pretty sparing with exclamation points. And I default to a Mr. or Mrs. if I don't know the person very well. And I know that's becoming more and more fraught. I'm willing to update. I'm not going to so stuck in my ways, but it's, it is my default position. And, it, and I've found that is something that is increasingly changing. So it is, but I am a copywriter by trade. So making sure that words are, are I do work on them. I rarely knock them off slap, uh, slapdash, but it's something you got to keep on all the time, as you said, very carefully. Erica, as a recipient of Nick's communication, I can <laughs> tell you, he do leaves a, a few things to be desired. Let's just be clear about that. <laughs> I just, just giving you a right, Well, I'm dropping no, no more Mr. Soder for you. We have to update from being great writers to great digital writers. Which and that's a different, different thing. It is. Yeah, so the art of the subject line. Get to the point. What do you need from the other person? If you just write no, so no subject or update, that can make or break whether someone reads it or not. Be clear and specific. Have a response time expectation. Say need in four hours or need in five days. In the actual email, if it's long, especially for those writers, break it up into two parts. Have a quick summary at the top and then the details below. Remember that people skim emails. They can be under attentive and miss something or sometimes over attentive and read into one line. And last but not least, if you're trying to make a decision, especially by email, don't just say, what are your thoughts and leave it open-ended. A lot of these digital communication channels don't do well with that because you don't have the tone and inflection around it. So for example, if I said thank you versus 
thank you. You could hear the differences, but if I just write thank you in an email, you have no idea which thank you it is. So taking the time to design your questions carefully, instead of saying thoughts or what are your ideas, saying, do you want to move forward with A, B, or C, actually present options. And it's a much more effective way to make sure you get work done in these different channels. Yeah, I've been a, a writer, a professional writer in a marketing capacity for 15 years or so. And the number one thing that's changed is brevity. Less, less and less is more. And that's a tricky thing. I think it was Lincoln that I wrote. I would have written less, but I didn't have the time. It, it does take time to communicate effectively. But we are not being brief and I love deep diving. However, we've got to take a quick break for a commercial and we'll be right back with Erica Dewan. Today's episode of Off the Books is brought to you by Workiva. I am not here to talk about Workiva, however, I am here to talk about grilled cheese sandwiches. Have you ever thought about how perfect, yet so simple, the humble grilled cheese is? It's just bread and butter and cheese, but it is so much more. It melts, it stretches, it is gooey, which is not an adjective I use lightly, dear listener. More importantly, it pairs well with all sorts of delicious things. Tomato soup? Oh, absolutely. Onions and prosciutto, si senor. Peanut butter and fig newtons, I have not tried that, but I am sure that it wouldn't be that bad. The point remains, things are better when you combine good things with other good things, which is the basis of the Workiva platform. Bring your SOX compliance and internal audit and SEC reporting and all that other financial work into the same platform and heavenly flavors will emerge from the ether and angels will sing. Yes, Workiva, get gooey with it and learn more at workiva.com backslash podcast. Welcome back to Off the Books. We are here with Erica Dewan, best-selling author and expert on connectional intelligence and digital body language. In your latest book, Erica, Digital Body Language, you talk about digital mansplaining. What is that? Digital mansplaining, much like traditional mansplaining, is the art of over-talking or taking over thoughts without being thoughtful of insights generated by others. Now, we've all been there where we're in a team meeting and someone takes over the conversation, claims credit for an idea that was previously shared. Whether it's a man or woman or across the gender spectrum, it happens. Digital mansplaining is actually a scientific term. There's an, an Australian scientist that actually has divin, dived into the research. And what research shows is actually this idea of over-talking can be accelerated or unfortunately amplified in a digital setting. It's easier to over-talk. It's easier to sometimes not give credit where it's due. It's easier to sometimes share language that can be seen as condescending. If you say great work in a face-to-face -face meeting and you show that body language, it can seem positive. But if you write, if you write you know, great work in an email, it can sometimes seem condescending depending on the power level. So when it comes to this notion, whether, and I like to say digital mansplaining is not just men, we all tend to do it. There are a few things that are really important here. Number one, really design spaces for inclusive discussion in your meetings. And you can use a lot of the innovations that we've had from the chat tool to have everyone share their ideas and then calling on people or breakout rooms to actually let people talk in small groups and then summarize what they discuss to avoid one or two people taking over the conversation to even just special things you can do to acknowledge others virtually. Even simple things I've seen leaders do like CC the entire team on work sent to a client. Even though they have no communication with that client directly, uh, when a leader really acknowledges the team, when they acknowledge who was part of the team in email, that can make or break someone's days. And so 
again, when we think about digital mansplaining, it's really, it just reminds us all that what was implicit before can be amplified now. And so we have to be much more careful about those inclusive spaces. And secondly, we have to check our bias, ask for feedback. Don't assume everyone's okay and on the same page and take those moments for quality check-ins to get feedback on how well you're doing to avoid digital mansplaining. Erica, that was great. But Nick, let me tell you a little bit about digital mansplaining here. <laughs> I'm completely I'm joking. <laughs> you actually made that same joke in I a did. previous episode. Right, so you, you uh, took we credit recorded. for work. Nick. You did both. You got I know, it on see, both levels. I did. I did it again. Yeah. I did it anyway. again. I, I make that joke, Erica, in, in all honesty, because in generally what I do on a day in and day out basis is provide subject matter expertise from the career that I've had. So people are frequently asking, hey, what's your opinion? What's your insight? And you get into a habit of just kind of like spouting that stuff out. The tips that you shared in the book were great. I feel like some of those, though, were something that a, a manager could do or a leader could do when they see this happening. They say, hey, we want to take that off the table. But what could you say about mansplaining and digital mansplaining to those of us who may be doing it but are completely unaware of it? Set a rule. If you've already spoken two times in the meeting, shut up. <laughs> Let others speak. If if you come in late and you don't know what happened, don't air off what was just and make people regurgitate what they just shared. Send a quick IM chat. Can you give me a summary of what was discussed to a team member to speed you up and focus on listening and then speaking. If you're the host, this is really powerful. This is a space in especially using video technology where we can really design and own the floor. Think like a TV show host, where you're not just letting people speak, you own the stage. You call on people, you cut people off if they go too long. It's not impolite, it's actually thoughtful in a virtual setting and sometimes even have a forced order. Say we're gonna start with Jenny and then Sam and John and start with the people you don't hear from as much to really reverse engineer and, and hear from everyone. Last but not least, Especially with video technology, we can instantly feel like we're talking over one another because we don't know who's going to share next. And that can feel hard. Even practicing a five-second rule. Let's give everyone 30, 60 seconds and then use the hand-raising option to speak. Again, it feels like we're in preschool again, but it makes a big difference for team engagement. I, I remember the first time somebody in our team meeting had used the hand-raising None of us knew what it meant and none of us knew. So exactly. So making sure that host to speak, will use the hand raising tool or we'll have moments for open dialogue, but we're going to start with who's sharing in the chat first. And some of those things can be helpful. Even if you're in a video meeting and certain people are not on video, I set rules. I say, we're going to start with those that are not on video first to remove virtual bias. Or if we're in a hybrid meeting, Start with the remote attendees speaking. Have a live host and a remote host. And even having the remote host lead the first half of the agenda can remove a lot of the bias and create inclusion. Erica, so much of what you're talking about here and in the book, to me, spoke to awareness, awareness of others, reading digital body language. How does someone get better at doing that? Of course, the book, I can't recommend it enough because it's got some great tips, but for our audience, can you share some tips? Can you share some insights about how to become better at doing We are all in the wild west of learning these new norms. And I'll be honest, they're going to keep evolving uh, more than ever. So when it comes to how do we get better at reading the cues of others and also sending the right signals, there, there are a few things that really matter. The first is when you are sending messages, and then I'll go to receiving and reading others. When you are sending messages, 
Never confuse a brief message with a clear message. Take the time to think before you type and give others truly what they need. Second, hold your horses. Remember that less haste equals more speed. You don't want to reward the fastest person who jumps in on a Zoom call or the quickest person by email. You want to prioritize thoughtfulness over hastiness. And that will allow you to begin to read the cues. We've rushed everything in our digital shift versus slowing down to speed up. And last but not least, notice how you find your voice and how others find it. There are many introverts that have told me, I feel like I finally can share in the meeting because I use the chat tool. I, I don't like, I, I think better in writing versus speaking and it's changing how I engage. Or I know one leader managing a global team, he had a colleague in Buenos Aires who didn't engage often. It was often because he was translating different English accents, the American accent, the British accent. So they started using closed captioning and he was much more effective in engaging in that meeting in a way that he hadn't been in the past, even pre-pandemic. Uh, so those are just some examples of things that we can all do to better build and master digital body language. When it comes to reading the cues of others, the first thing is to always ask yourself, what are you noticing from others on how they like to digest complex information versus not complex information? Do they really value that quick phone call versus, or do they want the email with bullet points? The digital native may want that email with bullet points. The adapter may want that quick phone call. Second, when, when they respond to you, what are some of the cues you're reading and that can mirror back? Similar to the way that we smile when someone else smiles, if they use an emoji, do you want to share an emoji back? And maybe Nick won't, but maybe some of us will, or we'll get Nick there one day. And last but not least, making sure that when you are connecting with others, you're using different formats of digital communication. What you may learn through voice, tone of voice on the phone are different from email, are different from the IM texting culture. And so making sure you have enough variety will allow you to read their style of language as well. Since you're getting into tips, I'm reminded that we only made our way through two of the laws, uh, value visibly and communicate carefully. What are the others? Let's go quickly through the last two laws. The third law is to collaborate confidently. And confidence today is not just our gregarious body language again, or being together in the room. It's about prioritizing thoughtfulness over groupthink behavior. It's truly saying what we'll do, doing what we'll say. If we tell a team, I need a report by the end of the week, but then we make them rework it for two months because we really didn't know what we wanted. We were hasty, not thoughtful. We do not, we erode trust and confidence or I'll get back to you soon. And then they're chasing us down for half an answer. It's okay to not have an answer, but consistency matters. So confidence is about informing the right people at the right time. Don't just have a 30 person meeting when only six people need to be there and everyone else just needs a meeting summary notes. It's also about prioritizing and staying on track, really clarifying thoughtfulness over rushing. And last but not least, it, it's more than ever around breaking those silos and creating those virtual or hybrid water cooler moments like the Oreo example where different teams can connect and collaborate regardless of their distance. The fourth law is trust totally. It's really the integration of value visibly, communicate carefully, and collaborate confidently. And more than ever, it's about designing for psychological safety. It's hard for people to speak up behind a screen with the screen freezes and the echo delays and the lack of tone. So we can't assume it will happen. We have to design for it. I know teams that start every meeting with having everyone share a win of the week, a challenge of the week. Research shows if you get everyone engaged in those first five minutes of the meeting, they'll be much more engaged throughout. Or 
asking our teams questions. What's one piece of bad news I don't want to hear? Or what's one thing that I can improve? Even as we move to hybrid work, I've seen meeting norms, like everyone has to share at the end of the meeting what went well and what could be improved. And it's not a nice to have one-off thing. It's a regular practice. And these simple behaviors were already important and we needed them desperately before, but they'll make or break trust now. Nick, I'm really glad you asked that follow-up question about the remaining two laws. I was so excited to get to the next question, and and then we were able to get to that. Um, Erica, a follow-up question that I have just generally is that I feel like my initial reaction when reading the book and hearing your comments, even just now, was that, hey, this is all great. I totally agree. It makes sense. But it, it just boils down to time. I just don't feel like I have the time. I'm always in such a rush to move on to the next thing. But you made a really interesting and surprising point in the book that we're actually not as pressed for time as we think. The pace that has accelerated, or at least we feel like it's accelerated over the last, especially 18 months, may not actually be as uh, hastening as we like to think. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Because that was such an insightful little nugget that you included in the book. Now, we feel like we're living in the hamster wheel of communication. We get hundreds of emails every day, and we're constantly inundated, especially now with video calls behind the screen. Uh, You know, what I really believe more than ever is that when it comes to time management, this is our opportunity to set our own boundaries. We, We don't have to adhere or just react to the hundreds of emails in our inbox. We can truly ask ourselves, what are the priorities that matter? How do we flip what ends up being 13 rounds of email revisions into two practical meetings that get everyone on the same page and really ask ourselves what really needs to be a meeting, what needs to be an email, and what isn't important. And I think that more than ever is what matters. Time is our greatest asset and non-renewable resource, and we have to take back our clarity in its sanity by being more thoughtful of how we use our time. You talk, obviously your books are well-researched. You must spend a lot of time with organizations and hearing from executives. What are some pain points that you are seeing from these CEOs uh, and any simple steps that, that they can take from a, from a C-suite level as far as communicating, especially between departments? There are three common pain points I'm hearing. The first is the fear of the breakdown of organizational culture in the hybrid office. How will we maintain our culture if we're not face-to-face? But culture isn't built in the office. It's built by the rituals and ways of working of leaders, and it's role modeled by those leaders. So whether it's redesigning how you do meetings, I know one executive that now sends a business update recording a week before his town hall sessions. And then his town hall is an ask me anything format where employees around the world are asking him questions in a TV show host like mentality. He's celebrating birthdays and collaboration successes, and it's transforming the culture and the engagement versus him usually just lecturing on a big stage in that live town hall. The second most common pain point I'm hearing is a fear of drops in productivity. And again, this is where it's really important to make sure we're measuring success and outcomes, not in FaceTime and hours, and fighting our own proximity bias. We tend, research shows we tend to reward those we see more often, not those necessarily that perform better. So this is an opportunity to break some of those biases and make sure that we're designing that measurement of success on outcomes. And then the third is the fear of decreased innovation and creativity. And this one, I think, is very granted, especially those that had a high level of in-person office brainstorming and innovation time. But I'd actually argue we can be more innovative and creative in this time. I've seen 
many organizations use a virtual whiteboard where instead of just the five people in New York filling it out, the team members from Cincinnati and San Francisco and London are part of a conversation that they weren't before or reimagining who's in the room. I've seen sales leaders and sales calls zooming in an existing client to talk to a prospect about how much they love their service and then zooming out. That would have never happened in the traditional sales meeting face-to-face, but it's transforming some of the innovative ways of engaging and selling now. So those are some of the most common pain points that I think we can all overcome in the way we work. You mentioned culture. Uh, Workiva has a great culture, and I know it's digitally based because I was hired in late February of 2020 with the start date of March 2020, and the whole world changed in between those two dates. The only time I was in the office was to interview. And but I will tell you, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had a you know weekly virtual happy hour, and I'm sure most companies in March 2020 did the same thing. And I would imagine many of those happy hours didn't survive into May 2020. At first they were fun and then fewer people showed up and then I'd actually rather work than do that. And then the, whoever made the, the invite just stopped making them. You mentioned water cooler talk and trying to replicate that uh, a while back. How do you do that in, in when those things seem optional in a digital environment like this? Yeah, I think what happened is we tried to replace the true happy hour with a virtual happy hour, but it's not the same. We're not all laughing together. We're not at a restaurant. We're usually not drinking wine or a beer together at that time and place. So it's not the same. And I think what we've learned more than ever is we can't just peg what worked in the traditional office to the virtual office. Instead, when I think about water coolers, so much of it is a designing more intentional spaces for individuals to share knowledge, to speak up about what's working, what's not, and to embed it not in a separate time where everyone has to come together for one more digital meeting because digital fatigue, screen fatigue is real, but to embed it into moments of existing team meetings. So it could be the 10 minutes in a staff meeting uh, weekly where you move into breakout rooms and you answer two questions. What's one thing I need help on? What's one thing that I'm working on? It could be as a leader, setting up intentional career conversations with every team member every quarter to really talk about what career development opportunities they want and having that water cooler time to discuss them. It could be a virtual cafeteria. I know one team that did does a virtual lunch roulette where individuals on Fridays can have a quick lunch together and connect around different topics that they care about. It's it's also weird because we never eat on the screen and bringing back some of this can actually be helpful. And last but not least, more than ever, I think people need a space for wellness. So thinking about how you can create those water cooler moments about around what individuals really need, the stretching, the, the team meditation, that may not work for everyone, but it could work for some or a group coming together to share knowledge as working parents or those that have ample time and want to support the business in a different way. If we create some of these working groups, networks, just like through the power of connectional intelligence, where they feel like they're contributing and adding value versus just talking on a screen, they'll find more benefit and will replicate the water cooler effect. So Erica, I have another question about communication response times. If you haven't caught on already, it's something that I am just paranoid about and I struggle with it constantly. In the book, you talked about the impact of digital ghosting and it was like the length of response time with the amount of anxiety. And I really appreciated that because in some cases I'm too busy and so there's too many things and so it's just going to take me a minute to get through. In other cases, 
your email or whatever requires a, not even just like a few minutes of thinking, but this might be a few hours. You need me to read something to provide comments. I really need to think about it. And at some point, if I play it out in my head, as that continues to, you know, increase and more and more comes, I'm almost faced with this impossible choice of responding to every single email. Hey, thanks. I'll get back to it in a couple of days or not responding at all. And I just wonder when you talk about the power dynamic and the familiarity, what do you say to somebody who is faced with that problem? And what do you say to those who are on the receiving end? And I know we've talked about these themes, but I just wonder if I could ask you for some advice more directly, again, to someone who worries about that, but also to those who might be on the receiving end of that kind of a delay. Yeah. So let's start with if we're on the receiving end, and then we'll go to the sender end. So if we're on the receiving end, we get hundreds of emails in our inbox or messages and we can't always respond as carefully and quickly. We need more time. We need to gather more information. My first rule of thumb and tip is to simply reply with a got it, I'll get back to you Tuesday. So people acknowledge it. They know, especially if there's a high power dynamic, they know that you're on it, knowing that you'll be busy and you'll get back to it later. Secondly, if it can't happen by email, it's too complex, actually know when to switch the channel versus just reacting back and forth. Secondly, on this on the sender side, when we're waiting for a response, as you said, Steve, we may start to wonder what's going on. Why haven't they responded? Then we might get a little angry. Then we might read into the conversation for clues. Did something happen? Are they mad at me? And finally, we assume they forgot and we follow up. That's usually the curve that that happens to most to most individuals that feel this non-response anxiety. I have a few general rules of thumb here. If something really is urgent and really important, the art of the follow-up matters. And one thing that you can do when you send the first message is send a clear response time expectation. So if you need it by Monday and you didn't get it, being really clear and following up on Monday doesn't feel impolite. It's, it's actually thoughtful and you're on point. Secondly, when you're following up, change the subject line. Make sure it's not just E-R-E-R-E, no subject. Make sure it's clear so that individuals know what they need and know what they're behind on. Third, last but not least, really ask yourself, would a quick phone call be better? Or should I text them? Again, what may work for a digital native, they may be on Slack all the time. For a digital adapter, might require that reminder in a video call meeting as well. And, and the general rule, I think, around ghosting is I think we have to redefine and rename ghosting because it implies a very toxic connotation. But the reality is we get hundreds of messages every day and we need some headspace cleansing. We can't reply to everything all the time. And what is a priority to one may not be a priority to others. So if we consistently don't get a response at some point, we have to remember to give grace and move on. Erica, the... We've been dancing around this, but I want to ask it out directly. So much of what you're talking about seems to boil down to empathy, responding to people the way that they want to be responded to, which is not too different from the way things. We still had those questions two and a half years ago, whether to go to someone's desk directly. Some people think that's the best way. Others thought that was aggressive. It's a phone call. All those things still existed. How do we think about and express empathy, though, in this almost remote-only environment? One study called the online disinhibition effect shows that when we are working behind screens, uh, we tend to be more blunt, more terse, more to the point than we would in the office. If someone was on the verge of tears, we knew how to react. We, we would lighten up, we would smile, we would give them a sense of empathy. And if they were excited, we would hug them or smile at them. 
Now we have no idea where people are at on the other side. And we know the definition of empathy is the ability to step into other shoes while remaining in our own. I would argue we can't step into the shoes of others. So instead, empathy is about really checking in in a way that gives others space to share where they're at, what they need, and where they need support. To not assume that everyone is on the same page and ask. Instead of just having the 60-minute weekly meeting, simple things like the 10-minute meeting four times a week are signals, I want to check in with you on a more frequent basis to show and engage with you. Uh, secondly, a lot of the things that we've seen in video screens is if, if you are connecting with someone behind a video screen and using your body language versus face-to-face, they are feeling much less empathy from you from behind a screen than they are face-to-face. So reading, as I said earlier, reading those message carefully and seeing that as the new listening and writing clearly as the new empathy is more critical than ever. Empathy is how we write thoughtfully in emails, how we value them visibly by not wasting their time, and, and really how we collaborate confidently by giving everyone the space and place to do their best work, but also not exhausting them with tools and information. And, and it's the flip because we relied so much on body language to allow us to signal empathy. But again, I think if we can build these skills, these digital empathy skills, we'll be much more effective in, as, as we deal with teams across distances moving forward. Erica, I know that we've got to uh, wrap up here relatively soon, but I did want to ask one other question uh, before we do that. So the theme of Workiva's Amplify Conference is Dare to Simplify. I'm just wondering if you could maybe share any final thoughts on how connectional intelligence plays into the idea of simplification and simplifying complex things. Yeah, I think it couldn't be more perfect. This is the moment to not connect more. We live in a world of screen fatigue and email anxiety, but to connect intelligently, to ask ourselves, what are the best practices? What are the communications and ways of working that are better done asynchronously? and a lot of these digital tools where we don't all need to be together. And what are some of the areas of work that really require us to be together? And I think more than ever, if we can truly reduce the bureaucracies to fight the feeling that we need to send one more email and one more meeting and ask ourselves, am I truly connecting intelligently to simplify work? Am I making sure that people have what they need in the clearest, most succinct ways? And more than ever, am I killing one more email and meeting and asking myself, what do people really need to get work done? We can simplify complex work and move forward to bring, let's be honest, sanity back to work. Erica, I, again, I know we need to wrap up here and I'm wondering if maybe you can share some of the communication pet peeves. As you can tell, I am hypersensitive to the way that I communicate with people. I suspect that our audience is too. Any final thoughts that you can share with us on maybe those list of don'ts and maybe the list of do's as well? Yeah. Let's start with the don'ts. So don't constantly be in a rush. Don't be constantly hasty. Be thoughtful. Take the time to breathe, to ask yourself, are you really giving what others need to do their best work? Are you using the right channel? Are you using the right tone? The second don't is don't forget to show gratitude. Saying thank you. Acknowledging great work. Even just saying good work here. I really appreciate what you did can make or break someone's day. And last but not least, don't multi-research shows. It doesn't help. Maybe end your meetings 10 minutes early. Start 20-minute and 40-minute meetings instead of 30 and 60. We know you have other things to get to, but actually being present 
in our modern day world makes or breaks that trust and confidence. So those are the don'ts that really imply the do's. This has been such a wonderful discussion, but unfortunately we have reached the closing question of the day. I want to thank very sincerely our unbelievably special guest, Erica Dewan, for letting us know all about connectional intelligence and digital body language. Erica's books are incredible and can't be recommended highly enough. How's that for some passive language? I can't recommend them highly enough. Let's be active here. Speaking of book recommendations, here is our closing questions. question. Besides your own, what is one book recommendation you are always happy to give? And what is the last book you read? Steve. So the last book uh, that I read was Digital Body Language, and I have it right <laughs> here. Right. And I must say, in our prep call, Erica, you, I think, very astutely, I, a little bit, but yes, <laughs> but I would say you positively challenged me, and I actually found it to be a great read. As to the other half of your question, Nick, the one recommendation for a book I always feel comfortable giving, which in fact I gave just this last weekend, was Boys in the Boat. It is a fantastic read. It's a fantastic listen couldn't recommend it enough. It's a great story. What's it about? What is, I don't know. What is it? Uh, so it is about an Olympic rowing team that was set near World War II-ish. I don't want to give away the story, but it's, fiction. it's a team. No, nonfiction, yeah. uh, but written in a fictional way. It's a very okay. interesting story. And it's about a team that overcome overcame insurmountable odds to go on to a high level of success in the Olympics. The individual stories of the people were heartbreaking and wrenching and just demonstrated this amazing resolve of the human spirit. It is such a great book. Erica, number one book recommendation and the last book you read. My number one book recommendation is called Choose Yourself by James Altucher. And the reason why is when I read that book years ago, I realized that I really wanted the rule book for the body of our language in a digital age, but no one had written it. So I chose myself and it, it really inspired me to write this book. And the latest book I've read is 4,000 Weeks, which the subtitle is Time Management for Mortals. And it really fights this notion, similar to what we discussed today, that actually taking back our time and being thoughtful of not reacting to the hamster wheel of digital connection and communication is our greatest power. 4,000 Weeks, that's what, 80 years or so? The idea is that's how much time you have. It does seem like not enough time. Not a, you just gave me the hives thinking about, I got, I got to live my life more. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. We have, we have in real life busyness. We have to be humans and enjoy our in real life. And that means sometimes getting off a screen. What a great transition. We will let us all get off our screens and do a little bit of living. I'm Nick Rinkowski. This has been Off the Books. Please subscribe, leave an Apple podcast review, or tell your buddies if you like the show. If you want to be on the show or yell at us or tell us suggestions or digitally communicate with us, uh, please do so at offthebooks at workiva.com. Otherwise, surf's up and we will see you on the next wave.